Let's begin reading in verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, And I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff, favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the people's So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So this is by no means an easy text of Scripture. It's been called the most difficult chapter in the book and even the most enigmatic chapter in the entire Old Testament. I tell you that up front so that you're aware of the uh, broader discussions that are worth reading into. Uh, You will get my take on Zechariah 11 this morning, and I hope to lead you in a way that's faithful to the Word of God. And uh, as Paul says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, to test everything and hold fast to what is good. I also tell you that up front because uh, we have some initial groundwork to do before we get started. Uh, To begin, God would occasionally have his prophets uh, dramatize his message to the people. Uh, They would act out different scenes to symbolize the way God had dealt with his people or the way God was dealing with his people, or the way God would deal with his people. 
In our passage, the Lord asked Zechariah to perform two symbolic acts. And we'll see by the end that they seem to be uh, related. In the first act, Zechariah is asked to represent God by playing the role of a faithful shepherd. You see his commission there in verse 4, become the shepherd of the flock. And then uh, in the second act, Zechariah is asked to play the role of a foolish shepherd that the Lord raises up and then judges. You can see that in verse 15, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So that's kind of how our passage breaks down. It's One play with two acts, a faithful shepherd and a a foolish shepherd. But something else we need to address is this. Um, What are these symbolic acts referring to? A popular approach says that these two symbolic acts represent only future events as we're going through uh, the text here. I mean, everything to this point in Zechariah has been future-oriented. And hey, by the way, doesn't Matthew 27 quote from Zechariah 11 uh, to talk about Jesus? Yes to both assertions. But the Old Testament can point forward to Jesus in more ways than just direct prophecy. We'll see that in a little while. And the main difficulty I have with this this strictly future approach, especially in the first act, is that uh, not just Zechariah, but Ezekiel as well, uh, they both assume that Judah and Israel remain a divided people already. And they then promise the reunion of God's people such that they're never divided again. But in verse 14 of this text, uh, the brotherhood between Judah and Israel gets annulled. And so that doesn't make sense to me as a future happening if they're already divided under Zechariah's ministry. So the approach that I take to chapter 11 is to see the first symbolic act as representing past events that have happened in Israel, and the second symbolic act as representing future events to come. Uh, In the first act, Zechariah is dramatizing the history of Israel from before the exile up to the present, and and it's, 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 it's through this dramatization of their history up to the present that we'll see points them to the future by various patterns it establishes especially in the uh, rejection uh, of God by his people. And then in the second act, Zechariah is dramatizing the struggles with, uh, a, with false leadership that his people will face, it seems to me, till the end of time. In other words, chapter 11 points both backwards and Forwards, and it's even by pointing backwards in that first act that it ends up pointing forward, we'll see. And it's in this way that it prepares the people to receive the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. So chapter 11 complements chapters 9 and 10 uh, like, like this. 
chapters 9 and 10 promised that a future king was coming and when he came, his rule over his people would be like God shepherding his flock. That's what we've seen the last uh, few weeks. Well, chapter 11 basically prepares the people to receive that king by rehearsing some of Israel, some of the things that happened in, in Israel's history and, and saying, first of all, hey, don't reject the good shepherd when he comes for you. Listen to his voice and embrace him. Don't do what you did in the past. So with that bigger picture in mind, let's look now at some of the details of our passage Uh, We'll spend most of our time on Act 1, where the Lord commissions Zechariah to become a a faithful shepherd. So in verse 4, we get this commission, become shepherd of the flock. God wants Zechariah to act out uh, the role of a shepherd. And by doing so, he will represent God's care for his people. We'll see more of that shortly. But first he explains the mess that Israel is in. They are a flock doomed to slaughter, verse 4 says. Why is that? Verse 5 tells us. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. So we we talked about this some a while back where you've got uh, these nations like Tyre And Greece, they're buying and selling Israelites into slavery. And so you get these foreign shepherds outside of Israel who are cashing in on God's people and then gloating over it as if the Lord's not going to hold them accountable. So there are false shepherds outside of Israel mistreating the people, but even worse, there are false shepherds inside of Israel who don't even care. It says, even their own shepherds have no pity or no compassion on on them. How could this possibly be? Aren't these God's chosen people? Well, verse 6 explains that this terrible situation is no accident. Rather, it's due to a judicial act by God. I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord, behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king and they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. I take this as a picture. It's a a flashback to God giving over his people to the nations, the the neighboring nations uh, and their kings. He gives them over to the nations. The nations end up destroying their land uh, and God basically leaves them for destruction. So what can they learn from this situation? Well, God has a lesson for them to learn. But that lesson will be learned uh, through Zechariah stepping into his role as the faithful shepherd who represents God. And that's important to remember throughout this, this first act. Zechariah is is representing a faithful shepherd, and in so doing, he represents God himself. So verse 7 says, I became shepherd, I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union. 
and I tended the sheep. This word favor, we find it applied to God in only two other places in the Old Testament. Uh, This particular Hebrew word, uh, Psalm 27 verse 4 and Psalm 90 verse 17. And I find Psalm 90 verse 17 quite instructive. Uh, It comes as a prayer and it says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And the the idea is to prosper the people uh, because of his favoring presence with them. And and, uh, so so here what we're seeing is that to shepherd God's people with the staff favor uh, was to say that they had favor with God. And, And you can see this throughout Israel's history, that God set his favor upon them more than any of the other nations uh, they were his special possession. Uh, and, and then there's also union. He's got these two shepherd crooks or staffs in his hand. And one's called favor. This one's called union. And sometimes this, the, the noun union refers to the, the binding of a, of a cord or pledge that's being made. And so for God to shepherd his people with union was for him to, to bind them together as one people. And so you see this pattern of when you have favor with God and you're reconciled with God, you're reconciled with one another in Israel. The other way that, um, that God's care gets symbolized here is by the swift removal of threats to his, to his people and threats to this favor and union that he's, that he's showing them. At the beginning of verse 8, he says, In one month I destroyed the three shepherds. So perhaps this demonstration, this, this act, act one in this play, happens over the course of a month. And in that month, Zechariah acts out the removal of, of three shepherds. But if this act symbolizes something else in Israel's history... The point, I don't think, is necessarily to go looking for the identity of these three shepherds who might have been removed in, in, in one month. Uh, though you can try. One study uh, had close to 50 different interpretations throughout church history on who these three shepherds exactly are. If you know, come tell me. Um, just don't miss the point here. The point is to ask how Zechariah's act um, functions. And again, it's symbolic. Uh, Interestingly enough, I think there are three groups of shepherds already mentioned back in verse 5. The buyers, the sellers, and Israel's own shepherds. And so the main point, I think, is that even when Israel deserved nothing from God... God still cared for them with favor and union while chasing off their enemies. Sometimes even removing their own false shepherds from leadership as, as a mercy to his people. We even see this in, the, in their history with you know, rapid removal of various kings. God doing that as a mercy to his people. So this is, uh, again, to kind of summarize here to this point is Zechariah is representing a... It was representing God, the faithful shepherd, who's been tending 
his people in these ways. Showing them favor, giving them union, chasing off enemies. The sad part of this story is that despite all the favor God showed to Israel, uh, they continued to reject him. And uh, from the rest of verse 8 to 14, it seems like all that was once bound up unravels. Uh, as God's patience grows very thin. That's literally what he's saying here is uh, that his soul grows very thin in verse 8. I became impatient with them. In verse 10, he removes his favor, uh, symbolized by the breaking of the first staff. I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with, with all the peoples, usually covenant would refer, we would recall a particular covenant that God made with, with Israel. The only issue is that God never breaks those covenants. And everywhere that I could find the phrase peoples or all the, the peoples, uh, it's talking about Gentiles. So this seems to, to uh, be using covenant in a, in a more general sense to symbolize uh, God removing his restraint on the Gentile nations around Israel so that they just didn't have their way with the people. You know, think of nations like Assyria and, and Babylon uh, and Israel being handed over to them in their, in their past. Then in verse 14, he breaks the second staff, union, and that symbolizes the annulling of the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Again, if we're thinking backwards, we're, then we're looking uh, at the division of the kingdom into northern and, and southern tribes. And what can we learn from this here? Well, when your relationship with God is broken, then your relationship with people is also going to be broken. If there's no reconciliation with God, there's no reconciliation with one another. So your first need in relationship isn't the relationship, it's God himself. And we'll look more of that in a minute. The situation gets even worse in verse 9. He says, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. That language recalls the curses given to Israel in Deuteronomy 28. And it reminds the people when those curses actually fell on them under Babylonian captivity. Uh, you can see this in, in 1 Kings 25, Jeremiah 19, Lamentations 2.20, for example. And this language, it's, it's some of the most haunting language that you can imagine. These, these, these curses in Deuteronomy 28 that eventually get enact or fall on, uh, on Israel. Uh, the most unsettling image is where it says that the most tender and refined woman would begrudge the others in her family her afterbirth and her children whom she bears because lacking everything she will eat them in secret. It's, it's just it's horrific language. So when you hear let those who are left 
devour the flesh of one another. That's what it's talking about. It's a terrible thing to be forsaken by God. We utterly need His tender care. And not to have His tender care is awful and devastating. This is ultimately what hell is about. God abandoning people to their own evil so that they never enjoy His tender care but only experience His terrible curse. And it's also why Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? He experienced abandonment under God's curse for us so that we would never have to. And He will save you from that curse if you will have Him as your Savior and your Lord. Right? We don't want to repeat the rejection of God's care in Christ as we see Israel doing here. They were abandoned by God because they detested God, verse 9 says. Despite all that He did for them, they're filled with this inner disgust for His leadership and for His care. And it even gets illustrated for us in verses 12 to 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver isn't necessarily a small amount of money, especially in light of the conditions after the exile. In Exodus 21, it was also the amount one owed if a slave was killed. The law was attempting to show that all, all human life is, is valuable. It's not necessarily a small amount, but the point is this. How generous is 30 shekels, really, when the only reason you're handing them over is to get the God of infinite value out of your life? You see, the relationship is so strained at this point. The shepherd is saying, look, you don't have to pay me anything. If you want to, fine, I'm done with you. And then the people come back, oh, no, no, we're, we're going to pay our share just as long as you get out of our life. We don't want you coming back. Take your money and leave. Zechariah, of course, receives that money, not as a payment, but as a testimony against them. Verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. And I think the, the quotation continues here, as I, under, as I understand it. So, throw it to the, pro, the potter, the lordly price at which I, namely I the Lord, was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Why toss silver into the potter's house, right? Well, Zechariah tosses the silver into the potter's house as a way to make yet another connection to Israel's past. Jeremiah chapter 18 and 19. Use a potter with his vessels to illustrate Israel's rejection of God's care. He makes a vessel, preserves it, chapter 19. They're supposed to take this vessel out to the valley of slaughter, smash the, the vessel, and this would be a testimony against Israel because they rejected 
their shepherd. He smashes the pot. I'm going to smash you, in other words, Israel. So Jeremiah uses the, a lot of the same imagery, too, that Zechariah does here. The people, uh, Zechariah calls, um, calls this flock a flock doomed to slaughter. Zechari- uh, Jeremiah 19 refers to a valley of slaughter. It's the only other place where this word slaughter, we, we find it. Um, Jeremiah, um, Zechariah 11.9, everyone will eat the flesh of, their, of each other. Um, Jeremiah 19.9, everyone will eat the flesh of his neighbor. The same themes are running throughout Jeremiah 18 and 19. And Zechariah is building on it by saying, hey, you're going to take this change, you're going to throw it into the potter's house as a way to say, hey, remember Jeremiah's words. Remember what he was saying. And remember what happened to you in light of his words. Which, if you've, uh, it's kind of a side note here, if you've ever wondered why in Matthew 27, verse 9, as Matthew quotes from Zechariah 11, but he says, strangely enough, that it's from the prophet Jeremiah. Well, this is why Zechariah's prophecy is building on Jeremiah's prophecy. And both of them are coming together in Matthew 27 to talk about Jesus' betrayal. We'll get there in a minute, but just see here uh, that by tossing the money into the potter's house, Zechariah is again recalling Israel's past to explain their present situation, um, especially that of the exile and, and just after with all these false shepherds. Just like Jeremiah said would happen, you suffered these false shepherds because you rejected the Lord's care. He said he was going to give you over to, to them, and he said he was going to give you over to them so that you would repent. You didn't repent, so he gave you over to them. So what's the point of Act 1? The point of Act 1 is is this. Return to the care of the shepherd. Don't keep doing what you're doing. Don't reject him any longer. In fact, prepare your heart to receive his coming shepherd king. Don't miss him. Then we get Act 2. So Zechariah goes behind stage, sets the mantle of the faithful shepherd aside, and then he puts on the mantle of a foolish shepherd, and this seems to shift gears a little bit and turn their attention from the past to the present and beyond. Verse 15, The Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. So this guy's like a lion feeding on its prey. He's not a caretaker. He's a predator. Now, it could be that a very specific shepherd is in view. And I think ultimately there is. But a couple of things persuaded me to see in this foolish shepherd a type of false leadership or a pattern of false leadership that will continue in Israel until, the, until finally culminating in the arrival of the Antichrist. So first of all, uh, in Zechariah 11.3, the shepherds, it's plural this time, are parallel to the lions in the lament there, suggesting there won't be just one lonely false shepherd in, in Israel. 
but a lot of them over time, and they all deserve God's judgment. And then also the prophet Daniel, um, especially in chapters, um, well, really the whole thing, but especially 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, you get this, this pattern of false leadership, starting with Nebuchadnezzar and running all the way to the Antichrist, but this pattern of false leadership that oppresses God's people until finally culminating in, in the rise of that. Antichrist. So that leads me to believe that this is, uh, yeah, this is a pattern, but it's going to have its climax in this one guy. That doesn't mean these foolish shepherds actually ever rule the day. We see here that their activity is under the sovereign hand of God. It also doesn't mean that they'll get away with their actions forever. We've already covered that in chapters 9 and 10. And verse 17 pronounces a woe on them. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the Lord strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So God will eventually hold all foolish shepherds accountable for their actions, especially the Antichrist, and make it so they can't lay a hand on his people anymore. Revelation 19.20 even speaks of Christ putting an end to this Antichrist by throwing him into the lake of fire. So that brings us to the end of Acts 2. So Act 1 explains why Israel suffered as they did through the exile into the present. Namely, they rejected the Lord's care. And then Act 2 explains the coming of more false leadership in the future, but not without God bringing it to a final end. And the way this seems to function, at least when I read the, the New Testament alongside this, um, is like this. Embrace the good shepherd's care for you until he crushes every false shepherd against you. Embrace the good shepherd's care for you until he crushes every false shepherd against you. Right? We should learn from Israel's past to welcome the care of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, when He comes, and we should embrace His care until He comes again to deal the final blow to all of our enemies. You see, God did send His Shepherd King. He sent His own Son into the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to the people of Israel and found them in a very similar state as Zechariah gives us here, Matthew 9, verse 36, says that Jesus had compassion on the people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The old pattern had continued. You see, uh, if you look with me in two spots here in Zechariah 11, um, you see that uh, the ESV has it, So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. Literally, that says, particularly the afflicted of the flock. So so I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered, particularly the afflicted of the flock. And then the same thing with verse uh, 11. So it was annulled on that day. And the afflicted of the flock, not the sheep traders... Uh, who were watching me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. So it seems to be that there is a subgroup within the larger group, and this subgroup is a remnant. They're paying attention to the prophet. They're listening to his words. And the reason why Zechariah comes in and shows 
patience and favor with Israel is because for the sake of the remnant within Israel. Jesus comes in later on. What does he see? The same thing. You've got Israel in general, a bunch of Pharisees leading him and stuff. But then there are the, 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 the truly innocent ones within who are beaten and battered and, and helpless. And he has compassion on these folks. The old pattern had continued, sadly. So Jesus comes to them. He sends out his disciples to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He shows his care for them by raising the sick and healing the lame and, and hey, teaching them the word of God and rebuking the false leaders like the Pharisees, getting them out of the temple and stuff. He even rides into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken of in Zechariah 9. If anything, surely Israel would pick up on this. Surely those who were reading God's word over and over and over again, like the Pharisees, surely those who had the scriptures in their hands would pick up on this. Nope. Turns out that Israel at large still wanted no part of his care. A few listen, but the rest forsake him. And eventually the leaders of Israel have had enough and they form a plot with Judas Iscariot. Jesus is betrayed. He's, handing over to the, he's handed over to the authorities and all for what? 30 pieces of silver. Just like we find here in Zechariah 11. You see, the way Zechariah 11 points, ends up pointing to the future is, like, is as a type. Zechariah 11 reveals a pattern of rejection by God's people that has happened throughout their history that ultimately finds its climax in the cross of Jesus Christ. The pattern of Israel rejecting God finds its ultimate fulfillment in the rejection of Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not just a prophet representing God. He is God in the flesh. And they reject him. But this rejection isn't by accident. It's by God's design. Just, uh, Jesus may have been rejected, but that didn't stop him from redeeming. Against this dark backdrop of false leaders in Israel, Jesus steps in, according to John 10, and says this, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't sell them off into slavery so he becomes rich. He doesn't not have compassion on them. No, he shows compassion by laying down his life for them. And he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold... I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. There's resurrection. So he's a crucified for his sheep and resurrected shepherd. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And this charge I have received from my Father. Jesus suffered rejection even to the point of death on a cross because in doing so, he would redeem his people. His father sent him on this mission. 
And he willingly submitted to it. And in doing so, God offered him up as a substitute for his people's sins. In doing so, God paid a price to liberate us from all our hard-hearted rejection of his care. In doing so, Jesus brought favor to his people once again by reconciling man to God. In doing so, Jesus brought union to his people once again by reconciling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into one new humanity, Ephesians tells us, under the care of one shepherd. Favor with God, union with each other, that's what Jesus wins for all of his people at the cross. And so, what do we do in in a day full of foolish shepherds trying to lead us every which way, the way of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3 would put it. What do we do? Well, first of all, we give thanks. We give thanks that there is a good shepherd to follow, and we know that he is a good shepherd because of what he did for us. He laid down his life for us. But also we, we embrace his care. We embrace the care of this good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and we, and we never let go. One of the ways we embrace his care is we listen to his voice from the word of God. We listen to his voice from the word of God. Do you want to know why we center corporate worship around the Bible and the systematic teaching of God's word? Do you want to know why one of the four main commitments of our care groups is fixing that time together on biblical truth. Do you want to know why I encourage you in reading the Bible regularly and the dig classes are encouraging your children to memorize the scriptures together? It's because we need to hear the voice of the shepherd. Every week we are ravaged by the lies of our culture and we're exhausted by our own sinful flesh feeding us all kinds of stupid thoughts and assumptions. And we need to hear a word from God and His Son who gave His life for us. We know that if this God-man, Jesus Christ, laid down His life for us, if, if He did that for us, we can trust that everything He has to say to us is for our good and it's for our edification. Even when it cuts us wide open to the core. We know that this Jesus Christ will come and bind us up because he is the good shepherd. He laid down his life for me, for you. So take that home as one of the main ways we embrace the Lord's care. We, we listen to the good shepherd's voice in the word of God. Find ways to hear it again and again and again throughout the day. Reading, singing, preaching to one another, texting, and then make the most of every Sunday morning to feast on the Word. Look up the next Sunday's Bible passage. Why do we print these things in the e-news? Look it up and read it during the week sometime. Pray for me or whoever's up here preaching it to do it well and with clarity. Pray that God would grow your affection for Christ through it. Get some sleep at night so you're alert when we're reading and learning from God's Word. How else do we embrace his care? 
Well, we submit to his caring leadership. By rehearsing Israel's past, Zechariah is pushing us to return to the Lord's leadership. His caring leadership. We, we need to submit to this caring leadership. He's showing us, hey, there are severe consequences when we choose not to follow the true shepherd. Some of those consequences we may experience in this life. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he will also reap. But the worst consequence is the total abandonment, abandonment to God's wrath in the lake of fire. Just as he was faithful to his word in turning Israel over to their enemies, so he will be faithful to his word in turning us over to eternal death if we choose not to follow his leadership. The implied warning in Zechariah 11 isn't just for his day, it's for our day too. We cannot pretend to know God unless we're willing to be ruled by him, to be led by him. Meaning we can't just be led by our feelings of what is right and wrong, but by what he tells us in Scripture is right and wrong. We cannot base our decisions in life merely on what I feel God is leading me to do, but on what his word is leading me to do. I once encountered a, a very dear sister, um, and, 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 and she had all kinds of passion for the Lord. And she had very good intentions of serving Him. Uh, and one day she shared with me that she felt like the Lord was calling her to be a pastor. And she was floored when I said, no, he want, no He's not. No, He's not. He's certainly calling you to preach the gospel. He's certainly calling you to disciple younger women and and, and ground them in the Word of God. But according to 1 Timothy 2.15, he's not leading you to be a pastor. That's not the Lord's leadership. That's your own feelings. Or what about a brother who says, you know, I really like this certain girl. She doesn't happen to know the Lord. She's not a believer, but I really like her. And I think the Lord is leading me to marry her. No, he's not. No, he's not. According to 1 Corinthians 7.39 and 2 Corinthians 6, no, he's not. Or when others feel led by the Spirit to speak in tongues without any interpretation or without any accountability to the Word of God. The truth is that that's not the Spirit's leading. The Lord will never lead us in a way that contradicts His Word. Which goes back to the first point. We've got to listen to the shepherd's voice in the Word. If we're going to know how to follow Him. He's given us His Word. He's given us prayer over that Word. He's given us a family in the church to help us discern what His Word is saying and how that Word applies to our life. And they will help us hear His voice rightly and follow Him. Another tangible way that we can embrace the Lord's care and then follow His lead is by caring for the sheep of His flock. By caring for the sheep of His flock. There's this great contrast in in chapter 11 
between the faithful shepherd and the foolish shepherd. Or some translations have the worthy shepherd and the uh, worthless shepherd. The faithful shepherd protects, while the foolish shepherd devours. The faithful shepherd unites, while the foolish shepherd scatters. The faithful shepherd brings God's favor, while the foolish shepherd doesn't even care about the flock. Of course, the same contrast plays out in the ministry of Jesus as well. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And he's comparing it to his own care versus the Pharisees. Thieves is what they are. They steal, they kill, and they destroy. He came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How does Jesus bring his flock life? He lays down his life for them. This is how he cares for his flock, through sacrificial love. What do you think would, should characterize the community that he shepherds? The same sacrificial love. I mean, he's living in each one of us. Risen from the dead, his spirit lives in each one of us. What happens when he lives in us? We give our lives for one another. Before he died, the good shepherd left us a new commandment. He said that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Same book that the good shepherd passage is in. John. Such a command is not just for leaders of God's flock... It's, all, it's for all of us. Leaders certainly play a big role as examples to the flock. Peter, 1 Peter uh, 5 says, says that. We're to be examples to the flock. Paul even charges the Ephesian elders like this. Pay careful attention to all the flock to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So a church should appoint and keep only those men who count the sheep worthy of Jesus' blood and who devote themselves to sacrificially caring for them, protecting them, and leading them. That's why we have a process in place at Redeemer to prayerfully consider the men who lead you in caring for all the sheep and why you're included in that process and helping us discern who those men should and should not be. But leaders aren't the only ones to care for the flock. See, they're to set the example and then the others follow. We're all to have the same care for one another that Jesus himself had for us. This is what happens in a community upon whom God's favor rests. Reconciliation with God produces reconciliation with one another. Peace with God produces peace with one another. God's love for us produces love for one another. And so it's no wonder that the New Testament is seasoned with all kinds of commands uh, that, that bear this love out in very tangible ways, like bearing one another's burdens and 
contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality to one another, having people in your homes, caring for the poor. All these kinds of commands, they exist because our care and compassion for one another ought to reflect that of the Good Shepherd himself. So let us hear him calling us to this kind of care in the word and let us follow him in this care as he leads us. And then, lastly, let us not lose heart in his care, in this care, till he comes again to bring justice. Let's trust the good shepherd to bring justice. With all the foolish shepherds in the world, I mean, we can name the obvious. Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and the Pope and things like this. With all the false shepherds and foolish shepherds in this world, we can grow very discouraged and fretful. Can the church survive while false messages go out? Is it really worth all the sacrifice if false teachers keep cropping up here and there? Can I trust that the church will be victorious? Yes, yes, and yes. But not because the church is such an amazing people, but because the church has an amazing shepherd. In John 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Moreover, as we see in Zechariah 11, no false shepherd, not even the Antichrist himself, is outside of God's sovereign control. He raises them up for his own wise and judicial purposes. He does it only for a limited time, and he will finally hold them all accountable for their mistreatment of the sheep. And at the end of the day, he will stand alone with his united flock. And Revelation 7 even gives us a picture that the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd and he will guide us to springs of living water and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Why don't we pray together?